Good to have Carlos back and Mike. Love you guys. Glad to have you. Always good to have you. Appreciate you being here. And um, man, give me your name one more time. I'm trying to learn everybody. Darius, thank you for coming. Good to have you back. Appreciate you being here. And uh, of course, we're just thankful for what the Lord did this weekend. Uh, I think I think our fall bash was a success. I do want to thank you for all your hard work, sacrifices you made, and um, I want to thank you for spending time with the visitors. I got several compliments on you, on different members of our church. I had compliments from the visitors. They were so impressed that you would spend time with them and talk to them, and that, that just made my heart just swell up real big. Thank you for caring and just going and sitting down with our guests and talking to them, uh, so thank you very, very much. We lost a great woman this week from our church when Sister Sharon passed away, and we got word from that. I started feeling an empty, emptiness um, immediately, and I can't imagine how Brother Tom and uh, Sister Jennifer and Karen and, and Brian feel. So I want you to keep them in your prayers. Uh, if any of you can make it tomorrow night to uh, Pittsburgh at the funeral home, will be the viewing. And then if it's any way possible, you can be at the funeral here in the church uh, Friday at 11 o'clock. Viewings at 10 o'clock. If it's possible for you to take your lunch break then and come on, it would be much appreciated. So keep them in your prayers, and uh, I know the Lord is going to bless them. We were with them last night and was praying as we got ready to go, and I'm telling you, we felt the sweet presence of the Lord in that house. All right, I want to turn your attention to Acts chapter 16, verse number 25. Acts 16, verse 25. When I read this passage of Scripture tonight, some of you are going to be familiar with it. You've heard it preached on many, many times. You've heard about Paul and Silas praying at midnight. And let me start reading it. And at midnight, darkest hour of the night, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. They weren't praying little squeaky prayers. They weren't uh, praying under their breath. They weren't whispering. They were praying. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bands were loose and the keeper of the prison awakened out of sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang it and came in trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas. 
And here's where I want you to pay attention. And brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, have you ever thought about why in the world did that subject come up in such a traumatic time? I mean, they were in the middle of an earthquake. Things were shaken. The prison doors came open on their own. And this man says, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. And when he had brought them into the house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Everybody said, bless the word in Jesus' name. You can be seated. <clears throat> I am going to talk to you about what that question was tonight. I know when I start talking about save, some of you are going to probably have all kind of thoughts go through your mind. Uh, you've been taught things since you were a child about salvation. Most of you did not grow up in the church. Most of you didn't know anything about the Bible until you got so miserable that you started seeking God and you started going to a church somewhere and uh, you finally realized that there was a possibility that you needed to be saved. How many of you ever woke up to that realization? Y'all really have got me worried tonight. I've never seen so many sad-looking faces as I'm seeing here tonight. Why are y'all looking so sad? Look at me and smile. Dear God, if you had to get up here and, and teach, you'd be scared to death. Y'all are scaring me tonight. Whoa! Have you ever found yourself in precarious spot where you had the same face. You, you made excuses to protect your reputation. Have you ever found yourself trying to justify a course of action that you took in your life? If you answer no to any of these, then uh, you're probably fibbing a little bit. Or... You are oblivious to your own nature. You just don't understand what's really going on. When God confronted Adam and Eve after their disobedience in Genesis chapter 3, you find Adam trying to save face instead of taking the blame for his actions, Adam Diverted the blame to Eve. And then even blamed God for some of it. Eve started doing the same thing when God was questioning her about her actions. She wanted to blame the snake. And then when the snake came time for him, he blamed the devil. <laughs> the devil made me do it. And that is one of the biggest cop-outs that I've ever 
heard us use in our walk with God, in our living for God, is we want to blame everything that we say or do or think that is wrong and bad on the devil when it realistically it boils down to this, that I make decisions and I do things, I do actions, I go places, I say things and I think things that get me in trouble and it's not the devil, it is my flesh that's causing me my problem. Everybody say I hate my flesh. If you don't feel that way, uh, not love your flesh too much. I think you ought to take care of your flesh. Take care of your body. I really do. I like that commercial. I'm glad I used dial. Don't you wish everybody did. I think everybody ought to take a bath at least every once in a while. I think everybody ought to try using a little deodorant. And man, if you got a little cologne, splash it on you and comb your hair and fix yourself up. Everybody ought to think a lot about yourself. But you know there's a danger in that also. You can get to thinking too much about yourself. And some people are blessed with good looks and a lot of muscles and everything in proportion. And they may get a little bit more attention than somebody else does because of what they have. But that can be a dangerous thing because we can find ourselves getting in trouble because of our flesh. So he blamed the devil, blamed the serpent, and it just kept going down the chain of command. And by reason of our nature as humans, I can state with great confidence that on numerous occasions, you probably made great efforts to save face your own self. I know that I have. There have been times that I tried to make myself look better than I really was in the eyes of people. I want people to like me, Brother Gonzalez. I really do. I've never wanted anybody to say, I don't like Gandhi. I don't like anything about him. I don't like his teaching. I don't like his preaching. I don't like his personality. I don't like his looks. I don't want anybody saying that about me. I don't want anybody uh, talking negative about me in any way. And if you'll be honest, you don't either. In fact, there have been a lot of fights break out because somebody just opened up the mouth and said something at the wrong time. Now, how many of y'all have ever been in a fight because that? Don't raise your hand. So why do we go to such lengths to justify ourselves? We want to make ourselves look good. Now, I don't know about you, but I have lied to cover up things that I was doing wrong. My mom and dad almost caught me smoking cigarettes one time as I, I was a young man. And I have never understood why I wanted to smoke cigarettes. I sneeze. I cough. I'm allergic to smoke of every kind. You get me around any kind of smoke and I'm going to start sneezing. I'm going to start running. My nose is going to run. And I, I'm going to be miserable. But it was so cool. When I was a teenager, when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, I thought I just had to try it out. And I remember my brother talked me into smoking one time. I didn't want to do it. It was all my brother's fault. 
he he came and he somewhere he got some cigarettes. He said, "Bub, you wanna you wanna smoke a cigarette?" I said, "Where'd you get these?" He said, oh, "I got them. Don't worry about it. You want one?" I said, "Sure, I want one." And boy, I'll never forget sucking that thing into my lung, coughing, sneezing, burning. I started getting dizzy. I mean, when you don't smoke and you you try it, it, it just and I thought, boy, ain't this good? How dumb can that be? I was miserable. I remember the first time that I, I, I chewed chewing tobacco. My cousin came down, another one of my relatives that taught me into doing it. I didn't do those things. They just come around and talk me. It's all their fault. And old Ronnie Darden came down. I was mowing a yard on the lake uh, in July. It was so hot, and, and Ronnie came up, and, and he just wanted to know what we was doing. And I said, well, we're mowing yards. And I looked, and his jaw was all pooched out. That was such a cool look. I thought, oh, man, I wish I looked like that. And finally, the Lord spoke to him and said, you want a chaw? It was the devil that spoke to him. <laughs> it was my flesh. And he asked me if I wanted some. I didn't know anything about tobacco. Well, I'm going to tell you, it was short-lived, I promise you. My smoking and my tobacco use was very short-lived. But I remember putting that mess in my jaw, and I started chewing it. He didn't tell me don't swallow it. And I started going down that, that uh, hill. It was up a hill and down a hill. And, boy, I started getting dizzy. I started getting sick. I finally had to go sit down. And, boy, I spit that mess out of my mouth. And I said, Ronnie, I said, this stuff is making me sick. He said, oh, you're not supposed to swallow it. I said, well, you should have told me before now. I'm sick as a dog. I'm telling you, I, I was dizzy. and my, I, I was just, I hated that mess. And, I, you know, I, I have a problem with that. I don't understand why everybody, uh, they say it grows on you. Well, it never grew on me. I never gave it a chance to grow, thank God. But we want to blame those things on everybody else. We do it to protect our reputation and avoid the judgment of other people. And this same tendency to justify ourselves with other people is also the tendency that many have to justify themselves with God. Saving face may justify you in the eyes of humanity, but it will never work in justifying yourself before the Creator. God will never be convinced when I try to tell Him the reason I did something and I try to cover up my actions, I'm telling you, God is never convinced of my argument when I stand before him. So what does it mean to be saved? Often we use the term that we assume that other people know exactly what we're talking about. We Pentecostals are bad about that. We talk about salvation. Of course, we even use the term uh, filled with the Holy Ghost, baptized in Jesus' name. And you get around 
a lot of people and they have no idea what you're talking about. One of those words that we use a lot of times is saved. We ask people, are you saved? Expecting them to understand what it is that I'm talking about. When we ask that question, a lot of times their response might be saved for what? What am I needing to be saved for? Because so many people that you and I are associated with have no idea that they're lost. Some people never go to church. They don't read the Bible. They're, they're not listening to preaching and teaching on their iPhone. They're not getting any Christian teaching or background, and they have no idea about God and what God expects from us. And you may ask them the question, are you saved? And they truly may not understand what you're referring to. In the biblical sense, the word speaks of the redemptive work that takes place when an individual turns from his life, which was alienated from God, and makes that turn and starts returning to the Lord and finding Him as our Savior. To be saved from sin and getting ready to meet God in eternity is or should be the most important pursuit of our lives. Nothing should be more important than being saved. Not one thing that you or I do in our busy schedules should be more important than saving myself from this untoward generation. I ought to be thinking about being saved every day of my life. I ought to be saying, God, when I pray, God, I want you to save me. I said it while ago. I want to go in the rapture. If I'm still alive when the rapture takes place, God, I want to go in the rapture. But I want to be saved, and I want to spend eternity with you. And if you don't feel that way tonight, there's something wrong with your religion. The Bible is the only reliable source or source book that I know that tells us how to receive salvation. It really would be nice to have one chapter or one book that gives us detailed, step-by-step explanation of how to be saved. Now, don't you agree? Wouldn't that be nice? If we had one book or one verse of Scripture or one chapter that would just tell us, give us specific instruction how to be saved. That sounds good, doesn't it? Thank you, Brother Mike, for responding back here. I'm, I'm reaching for a couple more yeses. I'm, I, I don't want to see those angelic glows on your faces that I was talking about Sunday. Of those iPhones and, and all that that's going on. That didn't fool me. I don't believe that's an angel. I know what it is. But God has chosen, instead of giving us a one chapter, one verse, one book, step, or series of steps to follow, God has chosen to place nuggets of truth here and there through the Word of God 
while he gives us revelations to understand his word that we're searching. This will inspire us to study and learn that God is not forcing anyone to serve him. We are given a will and we can make choices that determine our destiny and the depth of our relationship with him. But if we had one book, one chapter, one verse that told us everything that was required, we would feel like God was forcing us to live for him, and I'm not doing it because I love him, or I'm not doing it because I choose to. So I can understand God's thinking. He did not make it so simple that anybody could look at it and say, oh, yeah, I see that. But God's got something called his spirit, the power, the Holy Ghost that the Bible says will lead us and guide us into all truth. And if he finds somebody that has any hunger or thirst for righteousness, God will lead them to a place that they can get filled. God's not going to play with you and dangle a carrot out in front of you and this just lead you along and play a game with you. If you're hungry and thirsty, I promise you, God will show you truth and you'll get the revelation when you come into the presence of God. And that's so beautiful to me, and I pray for that all the time. God, when people come, I prayed Sunday morning. I said, God, let people get the revelation of the oneness of God and Jesus' name baptism in this church. Let them feel your presence, but give them revelation where they will understand the word of God. There are absolutely too many verses in the Bible about faith, repentance, baptism, being born again, Holy Ghost infilling, resisting sin, and many other things to accept the thinking of confessing with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, and this and this alone constitutes salvation. There are too many verses of Scripture that let us understand and know that there's more than just believing. Never accept just fragments of truth. Can we dwell on faith only and ignore everything the Bible says about baptism? Shall we demand baptism and ignore repentance? Should we insist on the Holy Ghost baptism and ignore Water baptism. Can you be saved by accepting one part of God's plan and rejecting the rest of God's plan and what the Bible says? When you search out the truth in its entirety and obey it, then you will see and understand the Bible does not contradict itself, not one and you will find out if you search the word of God with an open heart that God will show you everything you need to know about how to get saved. 
It may be hidden in the Word of God that you don't understand because you're not familiar with it, just like I'm not familiar with a car manual. I do not read car manuals. I think it's the most boring thing that I know of. But I have had my wife to get it out and read it and try to explain me some things, and it usually doesn't work out that good. To some people, the Bible is like that to them. They feel like it's so deep and so uh, confusing that they can't understand it. Neither was there controversy. There was not any contradiction in the Bible among the disciples and apostles about salvation in the early church. Every one of them, all of them received and preached the same message. They, there was not discrepancy. There was not a difference in the early church. When you go to the book of Acts and you read the Acts of the Apostles, that means what they did, they all preached the same gospel message. Don't take the opinions of any preacher, a believer, a family member, a friend, or religious denomination. When it comes to salvation, you need to get in the Word yourself. You need to ask questions, and you need to seek and search until you find the answers that satisfy your soul and make you understand what the Bible is trying to say. Read your Bible and study it. Obey it, and you can be saved by it. The Greek word saved is the word sozo, which means to save, deliver, protect, heal, and preserve. Webster defines saved as in theology to deliver a person's soul from sin and punishment to redeem from spiritual death. Romans 10 and 9 says that after if you shall confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now, that verse of scripture in this passage, a lot of people accept that verse, those verses of scripture as the plan of salvation. If a person just takes Romans chapter 10 and verses 6 to 11 and accepts this as God's plan for salvation, where is water baptism in that formula? Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 3 and verse 3. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Born again when, he, when he's old. Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, 
when you read Romans 10 and 9 and it merely says confess with your mouth believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead thou shalt be saved I don't think that is saying personally that that's all you have to do I believe it's it's understood that you cannot be saved until you have faith in Jesus Christ that he is the savior of the world. That is the starting of the process that God wants to give us in order to save us. Jesus made it very clear, except you're born of water and of spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That one chapter and those two or three verses there completely destroy uh, the verses that I read to you a while ago about just believing and receiving. Because Jesus himself made it very clear you cannot enter, you cannot see without being born again. Jesus also said, also said in Mark 16, 16, he that believeth Notice what he says. And is baptized shall be saved. So he is saying believing is necessary but there's an addendum. There's something added to it. And is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. And he goes on to say these signs shall follow them that believe. Wait a minute. Some say you just got to believe. He said the signs are going to follow believers. In my name they'll cast out devils. We'll have power that even the devil is a fearful of a child of God. And they shall speak with new tongues. Man, that sounded like the Holy Ghost to me. That sounded like power that is accompanied with my faith in Jesus Christ. It's more than just believing or accepting Jesus as my personal Savior. That's merely the first step to enter into the kingdom of God. You can see from just these very few references that I've used tonight that there is more to being saved than just becoming a believer in Jesus. There are some progressive steps that you must take in order to receive salvation from your sin. Let's look at some of those steps. Number one, you must realize that you are a sinner. If you want to be saved, you've got to realize you're a sinner. And so the very first thing is realization. I'm lost. I need God. I'm a sinner. I need to become a saint. I'm ungodly. I need to become godly. So you must realize that you're a sinner. First Timothy 1.15 says, This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world for a reason, to save sinners. Romans 3 and 23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore by one man's sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so 
and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. You cannot, everybody say you cannot. You cannot save someone who already thinks they're saved. And the world, the religious world today has made it so simple for people to be saved and it's so simple to live for God because there's no change. All you got to do is say with your mouth, I, I believe in Jesus Christ. I accept him as my Savior. I'm saved. No change. Keep on doping. Keep on drinking. Keep on carousing and uh, having affairs. You don't have to do anything if you accept Jesus as your personal Savior. Now, if you believe that, you don't read your Bible. You do not believe your Bible if you believe that. God always hates sin. God always has hated sin because sin is the works of the flesh and the works of the flesh destroy relationship with God. And God uh, hates it so much that there are many sins that human beings do that are called an abomination unto God. How can you live for God if you're living an abominable life? If, if the lifestyle you live is an abomination and there are people that are living this life because somebody told them that you can be saved if you'll just accept Jesus as your personal Savior. Confess it with your mouth and believe it in your heart, and that's all you have to do. You cannot save somebody that thinks they're saved. You must realize that you are a sinner before God can save you. God will not save anyone against their own will. If you don't want to be saved, God's not going to save you. He's not going to just pick you up and say, yeah, you're going to be saved whether you like it or not. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to save you and you're just not going to change or, or not going to live the way you were living. You're going to change and you're going to be different. God won't do you that way. It's going to be because you have realized I'm lost. I'm miserable. I need God. And when you do, it's going to take a returning, a turning away. And so the second thing you must do for your salvation is have a desire to be saved. It's one thing to know that you're lost, but it's another thing to have a desire to be saved. You must be sick of sin. Tired of the world and its system. You must admit that you need help and desire a change in your life. You must be hungry for God. What was it Jesus said? He that hungereth and thirsteth shall be filled. You cannot force someone to eat that don't want to eat. If they're not hungry, they're not going to be trying to get something to eat. It has to be their decision. And they have to make up their own mind to change and to love and to live and be like Jesus Christ. 
They have to choose to let go of the things that are harmful and ungodly according to the word of God. Here's what John 2 and 15 says. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. We read in Matthew 19:16 that a young rich ruler asked Jesus, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus merely said to him, keep my commandments. He said, I've done that all my life. What else is that I need to be doing? Jesus said, sell what you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And here's what happened. The young man went away in sorrow because he had great possessions. He could not do what the Lord asked him. The Lord knew he had a problem with those riches. He knew that those possessions had a hold of him, and he tested him. He tried him to see if he would be willing to give them up. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. It don't have to be a whole lot to be tried and tempted and bound up. It can be little things that bind us up insignificant things that we allow to control our lives. The third thing, you must have faith. You want to be saved? You cannot be saved without faith. Hebrews eleven sixteen says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So it's impossible to please God without faith. John 3:16, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice whosoever believeth in him. Romans 10:17, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 1 Corinthians 1:21, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. So from the Bible we can see that it is absolutely essential to believe God and his word or we will never take positive steps toward being saved. Faith is an absolute prerequisite to coming to God but faith or believing alone is not sufficient to obtain salvation from sin. Faith is essential, but it's not all that's essential to find salvation. Here's the fourth thing. If you want to get saved, if you want to get anywhere with God, you must repent of your sins. This is one of the doctrines of the Bible that follows our believing in God and his word. The word plainly and simply teaches us that we must repent. Luke 13 and 3, except you repent, 
you shall all likewise perish. Mark 1.14, repent and believe the gospel. Mark 2.17, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Acts 17.30, commandeth all men everywhere, what? To repent. 2 Peter 3 and 9, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Luke 24, 47, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. Repentance is commanded by the apostle Peter, the man that was given the keys to the kingdom of God. And we find that recorded in Matthew 16, 18. And after that he was giving, given those keys, Peter was also given that message that represented those keys that unlocked the doors to the spiritual locks that so many people found themselves bound. After you believe, then you must repent. You don't get anywhere without faith. You've got to believe. You've got to believe in Jesus and that he will save you. But before you can go any further, the next step is repentance. This means to feel sorry for your sins, make an about face, have a change of mind and heart. Ask God to forgive you all of your sins in your life. And that's what repentance is all about. It's asking God to forgive you and then making changes. A lot of people, I've noticed it over the years in ministry. I've seen people come to the altar and get the Holy Ghost. And whether you believe it or not, they got the same Holy Ghost everybody else got. But many times they don't come back. They don't get established. They don't live for God is because repentance is not just a statement from your mouth. Repentance is changing things. If you're living in an adulterous situation with somebody you're not married to, God is not going to bless and honor that which is ungodly. You have to clean up your act. You have to get your act together and say, God, I will not live this way. I will move out. I will not live in adultery. And there are people that come, and I've seen them over the years, come in here and cry and repent and ask God because they did it with their mouth, but they didn't do it with their heart. They didn't do it with intentions of changing. Changing is saying, I am not going back to that lifestyle. I'm turning away and going away from that. I will live difference. That's what repentance is all about. Anything that's hindering your relationship, when y'all have to go kill my, you don't have to say anything. I, I know your situation, and I've got a late start tonight, and I'm almost through, but uh, I understand. You don't have to say another word to me. So you must repent in order to get anywhere with God in your life. You cannot get anywhere without repentance. And folks, that's not just the initial experience of when you receive the Holy Ghost. 
when you make a mistake, when you get an attitude, when things are not going right in your life and somebody offends you and you start feeling that bitterness, you need to find a place of repentance and get your heart right with God because it will cause you to be lost if you allow things to stay in your heart. Then another thing about being saved is being baptized in Jesus' name. Most of us believe that. We preach it. John 3, 1, 8, Jesus here teaches that we must be born again of water and spirit, which can only refer to the spirit and water baptism. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus commanded his disciples to go teach and baptize in his name. Something that Jesus meant for us to say, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. And I don't know where that came from other than what history tells me. It's a man-made doctrine. If this was what, and hear me close, if this was what Jesus desired for his church to do? How come there's not one example in Acts or any of the Gospels or anywhere in the New Testament church where anybody ever baptized saying, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now, do you think God's that ignorant? Do you think that he is so disoriented and so messed up that he wants us to be baptized, saying, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, that not one time did anybody do it in the New Testament church? I'll tell you why, because that's not what Jesus said then. He did, but people misunderstood what he said. He said, go ye therefore in baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Father is definitely not a name. I'm a father. Larry Gandy's my name. Son is not a name. I'm a son. Larry Gandy is my name. Holy Ghost is not a name. Larry Gandy is my name, but I have the Holy Ghost. I'm only one person, and I've fulfilled all of those offices. God did the same thing. He was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. He fulfilled all of those offices, but his name is Jesus. Jesus was what he was trying to get people to say. And here's where, look at Luke 24, 47. This is the same time period of Matthew 28, 19. Matthew wrote it, baptizing in the name. Not names, not plural, but singular. What is that one singular name? Jesus. Here's what Luke said. Here's how Luke said he said it. Jesus said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and raise from the dead the third day, 
in verse 47 says, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name, not their names, in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Logical thinking reveals to us in Matthew 28, 19 that the Father is not a name, the Son is not a name, Holy Ghost is not a name. Luke said in chapter 24, 46, remissions and repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name. Whose name? The name of Jesus Christ, the Lord and God of this world. A lot of people don't understand John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word of God and God are the same. The Word and God and, and the Holy Ghost are the same. The Word and God and the Holy Ghost and Jesus are all the same. But His name is Jesus. It is a name that says neither is there salvation in any other. Acts 4 and 12. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What about that verse in Colossians 3.16 says, what does it say? What? what? Whatsoever you do in word or deed, 